These contributions were pivotal in the image generation space, setting stable diffusion on a different path from DALI. Having an open model led to product integrations, marketplaces, user interfaces, and innovations that didn't happen for DALI. The effect was palpable. Rapid domination in terms of cultural impact versus the open AI solution, which became increasingly irrelevant. Whether the same thing will happen for LLMs remains to be seen, but the broad structural elements are the same. What is up guys? Welcome back to AI Unchained. We are going to start into our reads. Now I mentioned a few times that I didn't want this to be the main format of the show. That's why this is not called AI Audible. But there are just so many great pieces that I pieces that I've gotten to dig into that I just really want to cover on the show and I would like to be able to read them in full. I I, I really do enjoy the format and I think it's going to be really helpful to cover a number of different ideas. And so I couldn't think of a better way to start off the reads than reading the article, the piece that I found, that really is what got me to start this podcast. It was, it was something that I had been thinking. It is something that a direction or a trend that I wondered if I was properly seeing. And, and there seemed to be hope that there wasn't this platform lock-in that there has always been with things like social media and the app stores and the operating system on like smartphones and these sorts of things that cause really negative consequences for the user, for the control and the sovereignty of the user. And that this did not seem to be, there at least seemed to be a glimmer of hope that it might not be the case in AI. And then I read this article. And it's so well articulated, so many of the things that I was suspecting and then added to them with more detail and more thought that I just immediately was like, this, this is going to be amazing. I, I think there is some incredible promise in this space for open source, self-hosted, sovereign AI tools. And it may just not play out the way most people are thinking. So that is what we are going to do. We are going to get into that read and then cover a guy's take after. A quick thank you to Fold and CoinKite for sponsoring my work. Fold is the debit card that gets you sats back on everything in your life. And I said debit card, not a credit card. You can get sats back on a debit card. That is correct. And you can get 100,000 sats for free if you use my link. That's like 30 bucks right now, by the way. And then when you get those sats, when you get that Bitcoin... What you're going to want to do is you want to get a cold card, hardware wallet, or one of the many hardware security devices at CoinKite, uh, which you can get 9% off with code Bitcoin Audible. This is how you know you hold your own keys and that you are actually Bitcoin sovereign. You only own Bitcoin if you own the keys. Check them both out in the show notes. Link will be right in the description. With that, let's get into AI Unchained's flagship read. And it's titled... Google. We have no moat, and neither does OpenAI. A leaked internal Google document claims open source AI will outcompete Google and OpenAI. Released on May 4th, 2023. Post by Dylan Patel, 
and Afzal Ahmad. The text below is a very recent leaked document, which was shared by an anonymous individual on a public Discord server who has granted permission for its republication. It originates from a researcher within Google. We have verified its authenticity. The only modifications are formatting and removing links to internal web pages. The document is only the opinion of a Google employee, not the entire firm. We do not agree with what is written below, nor do other researchers we asked, but we will publish our opinions on this in a separate piece for subscribers. We simply are a vessel to share this document, which raises some very interesting points. We have no moat, and neither does OpenAI. We've done a lot of looking over our shoulders at OpenAI. Who will cross the next milestone? What will the next move be? But the uncomfortable truth is, we aren't positioned to win this arms race, and neither is OpenAI. While we've been squabbling, a third faction has been quietly eating our lunch. I'm talking, of course, about open source. Plainly put, they are lapping us. Things we consider major open problems are solved and in people's hands today, just to name a few. LLMs on a phone, people are running foundation models on a Pixel 6 at 5 tokens per second. Scalable personal AI, you can fine-tune a personalized AI on your laptop in an evening. Responsible release, this one isn't solved so much as obviated. There are entire websites full of art models with no restrictions whatsoever, and text is not far behind. Multimodality. The current multimodal science QA soda was trained in an hour. While our models still hold a slight edge in terms of quality, the gap is closing astonishingly quickly. Open source models are faster, more customizable, more private, and pound for pound more capable. They are doing things with $100 and 13 billion parameters that we struggle with at $10 million and 540 billion. And they are doing so in weeks, not months. This has profound implications for us. We have no secret sauce. Our best hope is to learn from and collaborate with what others are doing outside Google. We should prioritize enabling 3P integrations. People will not pay for a restricted model when free, unrestricted alternatives are comparable in quality. We should consider where our value add really is. Giant models are slowing us down. In the long run, the best models are the ones which can be iterated upon quickly. We should make small variants more than an afterthought, now that we know what is possible in the less than 20 billion parameter regime. What happened? At the beginning of March, the open source community got their hands on their first really capable foundation model, as Meta's Llama was leaked to the public. It had no instruction or conversation tuning, and no RLHF, or reinforcement learning from human feedback. Nonetheless, the community immediately understood the significance of what they had been given. A tremendous outpouring of innovation followed, with just days between major developments. See the timeline for the full breakdown. Here we are barely a month later and there are variants with instruction tuning, quantization, quality improvements, human evals, multimodality, RLHF, etc., etc., many of which build on each other. Most importantly, they have solved the scaling problem to the extent that anyone can tinker. Many of the new ideas are from ordinary people. The barrier to entry for training and experimentation has dropped from the total output of a major research organization to one person, an evening, and a beefy laptop. Why we could have seen it coming. 
in many ways, this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. The current renaissance in open-source LLMs comes hot on the heels of a renaissance in image generation. The similarities are not lost on the community, with many calling this the stable diffusion moment for LLMs. In both cases, low-cost public involvement was enabled by a vastly cheaper mechanism for fine-tuning, called low-rank adaptation, or LORA, combined with a significant breakthrough in scale, latent diffusion for image synthesis, chinchilla for LLMs, in both cases, access to a sufficiently high-quality model kicked off a flurry of ideas and iteration from individuals and institutions around the world. In both cases, this quickly outpaced the large players. These contributions were pivotal in the image generation space, setting stable diffusion on a different path from DALI. Having an open model led to product integrations, marketplaces, user interfaces, and innovations that didn't happen for DALI. The effect was palpable. Rapid domination in terms of cultural impact versus the open AI solution, which became increasingly irrelevant. Whether the same thing will happen for LLMs remains to be seen, but the broad structural elements are the same. What we missed. The innovation that powered open source's recent successes directly solved problems that we are still struggling with. Paying more attention to their work could help us to avoid reinventing the wheel. LoRa is an incredibly powerful technique we should probably be paying more attention to. LoRa works by representing model updates as low-rank factorizations, which reduces the size of the update matrices by a factor of up to several thousand. This allows model fine-tuning at a fraction of the cost in time. Being able to personalize a language model in a few hours on consumer hardware is a big deal, particularly for aspirations that involve incorporating new and diverse knowledge in near real time. The fact that this technology exists is underexploited inside Google, even though it directly impacts some of our most ambitious projects. Retraining models from scratch is the hard path. Part of what makes LoRa so effective is that, like other forms of fine-tuning, it's stackable. Improvements like instruction tuning can be applied and then leveraged as other contributors add on dialogue or reasoning or tool use. While the individual fine tunings are low rank, their sum need not be, allowing full rank updates to the model to accumulate over time. This means that as new and better datasets and tasks become available, the model can be cheaply kept up to date without ever having to pay the cost of a full run. By contrast, training giant models from scratch not only throws away the pre-training, but also any iterative improvements that have been made on top. In the open source world, it doesn't take long before these improvements dominate, making a full retrain extremely costly. We should be thoughtful about whether each new application or idea really needs a whole new model. If we really do have major architectural improvements that preclude directly reusing model weights, then we should invest in more aggressive forms of distillation, that allow us to retain as much of the previous generation's capabilities as possible. Large models aren't more capable in the long run if we can iterate faster on small models. LoRa updates are very cheap to produce, about $100 for the most popular model sizes. This means that almost anyone with an idea can generate one and distribute it. Training times under a day are the norm. At that pace, it doesn't take long before the cumulative effect of all of these fine-tunings overcome starting off at a size disadvantage. Indeed, in terms of engineer hours, the pace of improvement from these models vastly outstrips 
what we can do with our largest variants, and the best are already largely indistinguishable from ChatGPT. Focusing on maintaining some of the largest models on the planet actually puts us at a disadvantage. Data quality scales better than data size. Many of these projects are saving time by training on small, highly curated datasets. This suggests there is some flexibility in data scaling laws. The existence of such datasets follows from the line of thinking in data doesn't do what you think, and they are rapidly becoming the standard way to do training outside Google. These datasets are built using synthetic methods, for example, filtering the best responses from an existing model and scavenging from other projects, neither of which is dominant at Google. Fortunately, these high-quality datasets are open source, so they are free to use. Directly competing with open source is a losing proposition. This recent progress has direct, immediate implications for our business strategy. Why would you pay for a Google product with usage restrictions if there is a free, high-quality alternative without them? And we should not expect to be able to catch up. The modern internet runs on open source for a reason. Open source has some significant advantages that we cannot replicate. We need them more than they need us. Keeping our technology secret was always a tenuous proposition. Google researchers are leaving for other companies on a regular cadence, so we can assume they know everything we know, and will continue to for as long as that pipeline is open. But holding on to a competitive advantage in technology becomes even harder now that cutting-edge research in LLMs is affordable. Research institutions all over the world are building on each other's work, exploring the solution space in a breadth-first way that far outstrips our own capacity. We can try to hold tightly onto our secrets while outside innovation dilutes their value, or we can try to learn from each other. Individuals are not constrained by licenses to the same degree as corporations. Much of this innovation is happening on top of the leaked model weights from Meta. While this will inevitably change as truly open models get better, the point is that they don't have to wait. The legal cover afforded by personal use and the impracticality of prosecuting individuals means that individuals are getting access to these technologies while they are hot. Being your own customer means you understand the use case. Browsing through the models that people are creating in the image generation space, there is a vast outpouring of creativity, from anime generators to HDR landscapes. These models are used and created by people who are deeply immersed in their particular subgenre, lending a depth of knowledge and empathy we cannot hope to match. Owning the ecosystem. Letting open source work for us. Paradoxically, the one clear winner in all of this is Meta. Because the leaked model was theirs, they have effectively garnered an entire planet's worth of free labor. Since most open source innovation is happening on top of their architecture, there is nothing stopping them from directly incorporating it into their products. The value of owning the ecosystem cannot be overstated. Google itself has successfully used this paradigm in its open source offerings, like Chrome and Android. By owning the platform where innovation happens, Google cements itself as a thought leader and direction setter, earning the ability to shape the narrative on ideas that are larger than itself. The more tightly we control our models, the more attractive we make open alternatives. 
Google and OpenAI have both gravitated defensively toward release patterns that allow them to retain tight control over how their models are used. But this control is a fiction. Anyone seeking to use LLMs for unsanctioned purposes can simply take their pick of the freely available models. Google should establish itself as a leader in the open source community, taking the lead by cooperating with rather than ignoring the broader conversation. This probably means taking some uncomfortable steps, like publishing the model weights for small ULM variants. This necessarily means relinquishing some control over our models, but this compromise is inevitable. We cannot hope to both drive innovation and control it. Epilogue. What about OpenAI? All this talk of open source can feel unfair given OpenAI's current closed policy. Why do we have to share if they won't? But the fact of the matter is, we are already sharing everything with them in the form of the steady flow of poached senior researchers. Until we stem that tide, secrecy is a moot point. And in the end, open AI doesn't matter. They are making the same mistakes we are in their posture relative to open source, and their ability to maintain an edge is necessarily in question. Open source alternatives can and will eventually eclipse them unless they change their stance. In this respect, at least, we can make the first move. The Timeline February 24th, 2023, Llama is launched. Meta launches Llama, open sourcing the code, but not the weights. At this point, Llama is not instruction or conversation tuned. Like many current models, it is a relatively small model, available at 7 billion, 13 billion, 33 billion, and 65 billion parameters, that has been trained for a relatively large amount of time, and is therefore quite capable relative to its size. March 3rd, 2023. The inevitable happens. Within a week, Llama is leaked to the public. The impact on the community cannot be overstated. Existing licenses prevent it from being used for commercial purposes, but suddenly, anyone is able to experiment. From this point forward, innovation comes hard and fast. March 12, 2023. Language models on a toaster. A little over a week later, Artem Andrinko gets the model working on a Raspberry Pi. At this point, the model runs too slowly to be practical because the weights must be paged in and out of memory. Nonetheless, this sets the stage for an onslaught of minification efforts. March 13th, 2023. Fine-tuning on a laptop. The next day, Stanford releases Alpaca, which adds instruction tuning to Llama. More important than the actual weights, however, was Eric Wang's Alpaca LoRa repo, which used low-rank fine-tuning to do this training, quote, within hours on a single RTX 4090. Suddenly, anyone could fine-tune the model to do anything, kicking off a race to the bottom on low-budget fine-tuning projects. Papers proudly describe their total spend of a few hundred dollars. What's more, the low-rank updates can be distributed easily and separately from the original weights, making them independent of the original license from Meta. Anyone can share and apply them. March 18th, 2023. Now it's fast. Georgi Gurganov uses 4-bit quantization to run Llama on a MacBook CPU. It is the first, quote, no GPU solution that is fast enough to be practical. 
March 19, 2023, a 13-billion parameter model achieves, quote, parity with BARD. The next day, a cross-university collaboration releases Vacuna and uses GPT-4-powered eval to provide qualitative comparisons of model outputs. While the evaluation method is suspect, the model is materially better than earlier variants. Training cost? $300. Notably, they were able to use data from ChatGPT while circumventing restrictions on its API. They simply sampled examples of, quote, impressive ChatGPT dialogue posted on sites like ShareGPT. March 25, 2023. Choose your own model. Nomic releases GPT for all, which is both a model and, more importantly, an ecosystem. For the first time, we see models, including Vacuna, being gathered together in one place. Training cost, $100. March 28, 2023. Open Source GPT-3. Cerebrus, not to be confused with our own Cerebra, trains the GPT-3 architecture using the optimal compute schedule implied by Chinchilla and the optimal scaling implied by microparameterization. This outperforms existing GPT-3 clones by a wide margin and represents the first confirmed use of microparameterization in the wild. These models are trained from scratch, meaning the community is no longer dependent on Llama. March 28, 2023. Multimodal training in one hour. Using a novel parameter-efficient fine-tuning, or PEFT technique, Llama Adapter introduces instruction tuning and multimodality in one hour of training. Impressively, they do so with just 1.2 million learnable parameters. The model achieves a new soda on multimodal science QA. Just because I'm sure that sounds confusing, it just the idea that it is a, a soda on multi, multimodal science QA is just saying that it's, soda is state-of-the-art and it's referring to a, a test of science question and answering accuracy. So it's able to answer scientific or logic-based questions and that it essentially took the state-of-the-art position. And just to reiterate, this was on an order of magnitude fewer parameters than the alternative. April 3rd, 2023. Real humans can't tell the difference between a 13 billion parameter open model and chat GPT. Berkeley launches Koala, a dialogue model trained entirely using freely available data. They take the crucial step of measuring real human preferences between their model and chat GPT. While chat GPT still holds a slight edge, more than 50% of the time, users either prefer Koala or have no preference. Training cost, $100. April 15th, 2023. Open Source RLHF at ChatGPT levels. Open Assistant launches a model and more importantly, a dataset for alignment via RLHF. Their model is close, 48.3% versus 51.7% to ChatGPT in terms of human preference. In addition to Llama, they show that this dataset can be applied to Pythia 12b, giving people the option to use a fully open stack to run the model. Moreover, because the dataset is publicly available, it takes RLHF from unachievable to cheap and easy 
for small experimenters. And that wraps up the read of Google, We Have No Moat, and Neither Does OpenAI. So one of the first things, I want to get into a guy's take on this, and one of the first things that I noticed or that stood out to me was the fact that I had, I was beginning to buy into, or I had bought into, and I was beginning to question the idea that this was only going to work with, you know, 30,000 GPUs on massive hardware. And I was trying to understand that dynamic because that concerned me. That was one of the issues or one of the reasons why I started digging into this side of things specifically is because I was like, this can't be the reality that these things are going to be massively centralized in a perfectly natural sense in this, in the, in the sense that this can't be undone. And that was honestly a bit horrifying because it would mean that not only is there a moat, there's a there's a capital moat around these things and that they are really in order of magnitude uh, they are as powerful as they would be uh, as powerful as a tool of control and of manipulation and of productivity in the sense that we would practically be forced to use them in an economy where anyone has access to them and I hated the idea of the centralization and the gatekeeping that would come with this. And now there's a piece of me now realizing that this isn't the case. And, and this is kind of why I talked about in, I don't remember which episode or which interview I mentioned it in, but uh, I genuinely believe, at least from what I have seen, that there's sort of a, a double Moore's Law happening, where not only are these... Um, are these language models and really all the AI tools getting smaller and being able to have better performance on smaller and smaller machines, but they are actually getting better at the same time. Like they're getting more accurate and they are getting higher quality at the same time that it's getting easier to run them. And one of the areas I'm really trying to dig into is um, personal AI. Like I want to, I've got GPT for all installed on the computer and I've been playing around with it, uh, but I haven't done much with it yet. I've still just kind of been using ChatGPT because I have a built up history of conversation. But like I said, I, I want to get away from these centralized services from using somebody else's computer because when the internet goes down, that's not there. But GPT for all is running locally and I've got the RAM. I've got the M1 Pro with just, you know, a good chunk of RAM and then when I, as I build my Linux machine, I'm going to have 128 gigs of RAM, I believe. But I will have plenty of RAM to utilize these things and utilize the the larger, like, 40 billion parameter models. Like, it seems like 7, 13, and 40 are a common thing among multiple of these large language models, which I haven't figured out why that quirk is the way it is. Maybe it's just the data set, that, like, they're using similar data sets. But the models are getting astonishingly better. Remember, this was written in May. It's it's June 13th today. And not, I don't know, three days ago, four days ago, there is a new model called Falcon. Falcon 40 billion or 40B. And there are smaller models. There's, again, there's a 7 and a 13, I believe. But the Falcon 40B, the performance of it. So huggingface.co is basically a giant repository for all of these models, all of these different 
um, AI systems and everything. I mean, practically, I, I kind of use it as like the Google of all of these models, and they actually have it. It's, it's actually probably more equivalent to GitHub, if you think about it, because you can actually go there, you, you see the thing, they have the readme files, and you can download it. And this is where I've been getting a lot of... Of course, there are other websites specifically for like Stable Diffusion for the image generation models because stability, stability AI and Stable Diffusion. Stability AI is an open source model creator. They're, they're a company, they're, they're a community, whatever you want to call it, a group of people that are building open source AI tools. And this is Stable Diffusion. Or Stable Diffusion is their flagship product and they have a bunch of other things that are coming down the pipeline and they just released not too long ago that they're going to have a chat model as well and honestly just what's happening in that space is incredibly exciting and the fact and this is one of those things that's so phenomenal about and there's actually a quote in this that i think is so fascinating from the context of thinking about these things not as networks and platforms because that's not what ai tools are they're a form of cumulative knowledge that we share around and this is why i think it's kind of the natural idea if these can be run locally and trained locally and they're talking about training these things like really significant models for a hundred bucks for 300 bucks improvements these low rank uh adjustments well then the improvements actually have more of an a natural economic model for how they evolve and why very similar to the reason why a free market, there's no alternative to a free market. That the free market is by far the best way to transmit information about reality. Now, people who are not Bitcoin Audible listeners, you'll think, oh, no, capitalism is bad. This is not, A, what we have in the United States is not capitalism. We don't have anything close to a free market. The most important good in all of society is money. It is the glue that holds everything together. It's like it's like swimming through the fish in the ocean. They don't know what water is because it's that ubiquitous. But if the water was poisoned, it would destroy everything. It ruins everything. N manipulation and corruption of the money is systemic to how our system works. And it is, it is the total and complete evisceration of anything resembling a free market. I have an entire podcast with thousands and thousands of hours called Bitcoin Audible where we get into all of those things if you want to dig into that. Right now, I'm just going to continue this conversation with the presumption that you understand it. But from a free market perspective, from a non-fiat uh, toxic big bigness subsidy of political money, the reason the free market works is because of a form of massively parallel processing from all of the participants in that society. So when I am making decisions about the relevant value uh, or the relative value of one thing versus another. I am comparing it to my past value, to my past history, to the blood, sweat, and tears that took me, the decisions, the trade-offs that took for me to earn my money, the skills that I had to acquire, the time it took to acquire those skills. All of my past life goes into me understanding the value of achieving or acquiring some object or some good or some productive endeavor. All of these things are only valuable in relation to all of the other things that I value and all of the other work and skill I have acquired, which means that I am the only one that can assign correct value to my money relative to my situation. 
to my judgments, to my perspective. And so that is my refusing to buy an iPhone and buying an Android instead because I like the open source environment or going with a Linux machine, etc. Like my choices in the market, not only my abstaining but completely, my not buying anything is a choice that openly, that directly affects the market. And in my economic activity is my impact on the world in pushing it in transmitting my value and the the signal of my value to everyone else in the market. But here's the thing. Every single decision that I make then impacts every single other person's decision. So I change the price by an, an infinitesimal amount or I choose not to buy from one person today and that affects them holding that object two days longer affects their decision on the price, their relative value of how long do I hold on to this before it's worth it for me to get rid of it at a different price. And then whatever trade-off and decisions and the skills and their life choices and their values and what they hope to achieve in the world is then weighed against their decisions and their local life and every single transaction along that chain that goes for infinity because every single time a new transaction takes place it changes things it changes the conditions and what's available in the market that then has everyone else respond to because maybe three transactions down the line something has changed that actually alters my original decision because now the environment has changed now the prices have changed so the market works because everyone's individual decisions individual values and individual situations are the processing power collectively added together every single time we have a voluntary transaction. And the money is the glue that attaches those values to each other. So when you have a system where, I'll, I'll give the simple thesis, when you have a system where, the, where uh, the political apparatus, the counterfeit class, can just issue $3 trillion out of thin air, you've just eviscerated everything about the market. You've eviscerated that you, you've just, you've literally taken a hammer to your massively parallel processor of any sense of real value or real accomplishment or things that are meaningful and useful in day-to-day life to all of those people that matter. And you have replaced it with just some vapid political opinion that says, I want all of this shit to happen, even though I'm completely ignorant of everything and I have no attachment to this money whatsoever. Who the fuck knows what $3 trillion is really worth? Nobody has, a, nobody has the slightest clue because nobody's ever even come close to producing that much value. And then they give it out to their cousins, to their friends, to their political allies. They just hand it out, bail out a whole bunch of banks. That's not capitalism. That's not free markets. That's just fraud. It's just fraud in a political system. So any, anyway, wrapping this back around to the idea of the incentives of the natural market is... Every single time those transactions happen, you're, you're adding value from someone's specialty, from someone's life choices, uh, or you're, you're adding information, you're adding signal into the monetary price if the money is static, if the money is not manipulated at all, and it only responds to value decisions of the participants in the network. And this is exactly why centralized institutions and top-down planning always falls into chaos. Because it's simply, it's not a matter of getting like the right 100 experts in the room. It's axiomatically nonsense. You can't top down plan society because the very knowledge you are trying to plan for is local and individual. It's values. It's relative understanding of the value with people who have skin in the game making every single decision voluntarily. As soon as you make it, you push it, 
push the decision-making into an involuntary system where nobody has skin in the game, nobody's accountable, and nobody understands the value of the money they're actually transacting because it's all stolen from somebody else or counterfeited through a central bank, all of the decisions are meaningless. And whether or not you have super smart experts or dumb, political, corrupt assholes is totally irrelevant. They're basically the same thing. They're in the same bucket of ignorant of anything meaningful to the decision-making process. They will never in a billion, bajillion years understand the value of $2,000 of the $6 trillion they printed out of thin air, the $2,000 that you, you used for your child's braces instead of going on your family vacation. That $2,000 is meaningful to you. That $6 trillion could not be more esoteric, abstract horseshit to the political apparatus. They have eviscerated the meaning of that $2,000 trade-off three billion times. It destroys that parallel processing of society, and it makes money a tool of corruption and control rather than a tool of cooperation, which is its, its fundamental purpose. But the beauty of this is that there's an element of natural learning and collective learning that actually occurs in these models that actually mirrors that reality and may actually naturally work against the idea of these giant, centralized, uh, very regimented corporate models. So there's a quote here. It says, by contrast, training giant models from scratch. So this is on top of the idea of not utilizing the crowd, the, the knowledge or the... Uh, the wisdom of the crowds, so to speak. But training giant models from scratch not only throws away the pre-training, but also any iterative improvements that have been made on top. In the open source world, it doesn't take long before these improvements dominate, making a full retrain extremely costly. We should be thoughtful about whether each new application or idea really needs a whole new model. If we really do have major architectural improvements that preclude directly reusing model weights, then we should invest in more aggressive forms of distillation that allow us to retain as much of the previous generation's capabilities as possible. So the fascinating thing here is that open source naturally works this way when we're talking about cumulative knowledge, that it is most likely that those closest to a particular industry or a particular task or a particular fan base or a particular art style, like all of these things that we would want the model trained on, we can actually have local, when you, when you have it so that the training is accessible to as many people as possible, and that's something I really want to explore in AI Unchained in general, is how do we all contribute to the training? How can I add my... Uh, economic perspective to, you know, Bitcoin language models or something? How do we get the people that are closest with skin in the game to the very topic or the idea that they love or they most, they have most de uh, delved into or understand with the most attention to detail and personal feedback and trade-offs? How do we get them to train that one part of the language model, of the image diffusion, of the voice model? and then recombine it back into the broader model as time goes on. And then add to this, this kind of natural tendency to always build on top of someone else's, uh, always want to build on someone else, on the previous 
base of knowledge. There's also this huge legal and licensing hurdle that the corporate giants are likely to get bogged down with. The open source models are just basically like, okay, whatever. The individuals in the open source ecosystem just aren't going to be constrained by that. And that's not even relevant to whether or not it's legal. It's just the fact that this doesn't work. It hasn't worked in the past. I mean, imagine the problem of BitTorrent, except for the fact that you can train and do this locally and simply have it available. What are you going to do? Make it illegal for people to just download these tools? Good luck attempting to police that. But this is part of what we talked about. We went into this a bit with Svetsky in uh, AI Unchained Episode 2, in the second interview with Svetsky, uh, about bias and truth in AI, that the corporate models will actually end up neutering themselves out of some foolish desire to try and control what people are allowed to ask, what answers it's going to give. I mean, the amount of times that I've had to spend significant amounts of time trying to trick chat GPT into giving me like a helping me with a thesaurus on a sexual innuendo joke or just something silly or playful or uh you know I'm trying to come up with a good term in a story I'm writing uh I I literally have to say I have to caveat this whole thing that I can't I can't create an insulting character like it's impossible to create a bad guy because chat GPT literally won't give you insults so it essentially just becomes it's funny like to me one of the most one of the least interesting means for to use ChatGPT is actually for writing, for like writing emails, and I, I I love it as a contextual thesaurus and as a ideation machine for coming up with terms of uh, you know kind of turn a phrase or um, little concepts. Uh, like a great example actually is I I'm not sure if I mentioned this one, um, but uh, I uh, there's a company called Oklo, which is a modular nuclear it's a new company in the nuclear energy space and it's about smaller modular reactors that can be set up for smaller amounts of money and they're simply much more manageable and low maintenance uh, reactors and also generally safer it's the low maintenance is specifically because of the safer design but I couldn't remember what the name of it was but I remembered it was something that started with an O, and all I could think was Ookla, which was the speed, the internet speed test website. And so I went to ChatGPT and I said, I cannot remember, there's some sort of a company. I literally couldn't search it. I tried to Google search it and DuckDuckGo, and nothing came up. Um, and uh, so I asked ChatGPT, I said, there's some sort of a modular nuclear company that I think the... For some reason, I think the name sounds like Ookla, but I know that's not it. Um, but they deal in smaller nuclear energy plants. Do you know what it is? And it literally said, I think you're looking for Oklo. It's this, and it gave me like the Wikipedia entry and stuff. But like, it was like, bam, that shit just solved me or saved me like a significant amount of time if I was actually going to try to dig into that or find it in my notes. God knows where the hell that would be. And now imagine I could actually have that plugged in to my notes, to like my Obsidian, the history of my Obsidian notes and all of the notes that I have for each episode of the podcast. And then hopefully uh, in the not too distant future, I can run through and get transcriptions for every single episode of my podcast slowly but surely. But I have at least gotten Whisper, uh, the C plus 
uh, C++ version of Whisper running on the uh, running on my M1, and it's pretty damn fast. It's at least faster than I think I did a uh, uh, episode two of uh, uh, AI Unchained. I transcribed it in about ten to twelve minutes, and it was about an hour and twenty or an hour and thirty minutes. Like the audio was like an hour and a half, and and only took about 10 to 12 minutes to transcribe. That is pretty powerful. Locally run, basically endless. And for what I read, I actually specifically went to a spot where I knew both myself and Svetsky kind of did a little bit of tumbling over our words and said, uh, and ah, uh, you know, like added those, just like I'm doing right now, just added in those very human breaks and changes of thought and changes of pattern that lend to very confusing sentences sometimes if you're looking at it in actual text. And it did a freaking fantastic job of actually catching and readjusting those sentences. Like, I did not find any errors in this. I mean, I didn't read through the entire thing. I'm not going to do that. Um, it's not worth the amount of time it takes to figure out if it's 98, 99% correct. That's, that's good enough. I, I want it to be able to search through the database of stuff, have a contextual search of everything that happens in the show. Because people ask me, you did a guy's take once, and you brought up this story about blah, blah, blah. Do you have any idea where that is? <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember what I said in yesterday's guy's take. God forbid you're asking me 50 episodes ago, 100 episodes ago. Now imagine putting those two things together. As you can start to stack the the kind of multi-threaded, or, or you... you Multimodality, I guess, is really what we're talking about, is the ability to use one model to utilize another model, is to stack their their uses on top of each other and to understand how they talk to each other. I mean, that's just really, really exciting, especially when we could potentially get this kind of in the base of an operating system and we have this, we have this roadmap, we have this trajectory where it really looks like in a year or two we're going to be able to run this on any base hardware like like even without massive hardware improvements these are going to be available these are going to be the primary interface by which we interact with computers and one of the most amazing things and this is something that uh, i will have a link to in the show notes in fact let me make sure i put it down right now um is uh this is a lex friedman podcast episode um uh with chris latner and uh, I would really, I'm really trying to get him on the show. I mean, he said he was like super busy right now and kind of wants to re-up stuff like that in six months and he'll start doing the podcast circuit again. So hopefully he wasn't just like giving me a polite uh, no thank you. Um, I mean, he was giving me a polite no thank you, not right now, but he said, please refresh this in six months. So I told him, understand, I'm going to refresh this. I'm going to bug you in six months, but I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the window of time you asked for. But he is the creator or the founder or co-founder, I think, of Modular. And uh, they are building out something called Mojo, which if you have run any of these systems, I mean, you know, if anybody's played with these AI tools, they are massive computation in RAM hogs. And in particular, Python is always just a big, bloated disaster. Python is a huge hog on uh, computational resources. It's big, bulky, and slow, but it's great to write in. It's a great language for learning, and it's abstract enough that it's practically human-readable. 
But that probably lends a lot of the reason, lends to a lot of the reason why it's so bad on resources is because it's so far removed from the actual hardware. Mojo is essentially a language that is a bridge between the hardware itself and Python to allow Python to use the computational resources, the multi-threadedness, the, the RAM, the hard drive, everything on your computer in the most efficient and direct way that is best for executing the Python. So again, going back to the idea of the kind of doubles, double Moore's law of the models getting smaller, uh, the models, even the larger models being easier to run on smaller hardware and quantization and these other uh, improvements or tricks, I guess, and how to utilize these things. And in the quality going up on fewer parameters. When we're talking about a crowd of people all with their very specific speciality or the thing, the issue that they care most about, curating the information and the quality of the content going into it, where you can have a much smaller model or a much smaller Allura um, uh, adaptation with few parameters, but as you build these things into the broader model, you have a shockingly low parameter model that produces very, very high quality results because just throwing everything under the sun at it is does simply doesn't produce better knowledge. And I think that's kind of natural to the idea of knowledge is that when you're in a world of just endless information, the most important thing you can do is curate. The most important thing you can do is choose what to learn and have basic, intelligent, uh, very useful and very aligned heuristics on what makes the most sense, on what to choose to learn. When you export this job to the community and then you allow them to voluntarily contribute and build their own tools and train their own models on the thing that they are closest to, and then you recombine these into the larger models, if you if you get more people onto training, this is why I think it's so important for us to adopt these tools and use these tools and understand how open source is because we're literally talking about all of us as individuals being to being able to contribute. And I think we can. I think we should do this. And it will be our use and our understanding of these tools, simplifying these tools, which is funny because the AIs themselves, the tools themselves are going to be what allows us to make it easier to... Uh, to utilize and make it more accessible because you can code you can you can build simple interfaces you can bridge small gaps with people who aren't even really developers myself I, I use this example numerous times of the idea that I am able to produce scripts and small simple applications and kind of like one-off tasks and stuff that I would bash yeah, that I could maybe build in a Bash script or an Apple script that now I can just do in 10, 15 minutes using ChatGPT in a couple of iterations. And I'm not a developer. I don't have, I don't have the patience for that. I, I want faster results, and it's so tedious to me. So I generally just don't build those things. I have in the past for things that I, for jobs that I hate. I, I tediously build a Bash script to do something that's just a painfully tedious job. But now it's so easy that I've gotten to where I delete a lot of my scripts because I can just produce a new one with ChatGPT. And as ChatGPT improves, it gives me a better result. 
As we enter this new space where more people are able to utilize these tools and then we can turn right around and make the AI tools themselves more accessible by opening up this new community of people who can develop and expand on it. And then going back to my, my point with, with bringing up Mojo, we are talking about what they boast and they have shown through a handful of the most important element is that, you know, there's like 10 to 15x improvements, but they compound on each other. That they have actually managed to get 35,000 times performance improvement for the same Python code by running it with Mojo instead of without. I genuinely think when we talk about the potential of a basic smartphone being able to run a advanced, high-quality, uh, very responsive, large language model. I think that is totally within the realm of possibility within two years. I expect to see these things embedded into operating systems. Now, if you are interested in Mojo, I will have the link to um, their announcement video. Uh, that's the first thing that I watched, and it's so cool. Uh, and it's just kind of a whole whole bunch of things that I wasn't even aware of. And then I will also link to the Lex Friedman episode with Chris Latner, uh, which is like three and a half hours, and it's super technical. Uh, a lot of it even went over my head. Like I, like I said, I'm not a developer, so a lot of the languages and spe specific things that they talk about were difficult for me. But what I tend to do is kind of listen through this um, and dig a little bit deeper and maybe ask ChatGPT a bunch of questions about this, these things. Um, or GPT for all on my own computer and then go back to it in like three or four months. So I've got it saved to listen to again. Uh, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what I am able to pull, what more I am able to pull out of it um, with a few months of kind of focusing really hard on this rabbit hole. But going back to the idea of community adjustments and how simple or how low cost these, uh, the ability to accomplish these like kind of micro trainings or highly specific trainings. Um, there's a great quote it says, Lora updates are very cheap to produce, about $100 for the most popular model sizes. This means that almost anyone with an idea can generate one and distribute it. Training times under a day are the norm. At that pace, it doesn't take long before the cumulative effect of all of these fine tunings overcomes starting off at a size disadvantage. Indeed, in terms of engineer hours, the pace of improvement from these models vastly outstrips what we can do with our largest variants, and the best are already largely indistinguishable from ChatGPT. Focusing on maintaining some of the largest models on the planet actually puts us at a disadvantage. So he links to, in the, the comments, says that the best are already largely indistinguishable from ChatGPT. Um, it links to Koala. Uh, which uh, the Berkeley Artificial Intelligence Research, Koala, a dialogue model for academic research. And I'm talking about the comparison of it to ChatGPT, BARD, Bing Chat, etc. And um, what's funny is the Falcon model, like I said, was just released super recently, is at the top of the leaderboards on Hugging Face. And the leaderboards are basically just like a handful of different testing parameters uh, or means of testing i think like the science qa um like simple reasoning skills etc like it's just got a couple of different things that they want to train the llm model and see the 
um, so they can give a clear result. You know, they, they have some standardized way to weigh these things against each other. And the Falcon, the new model, fully open source Apache license, um, has basically taken the top of the charts. But it's literally so new that nobody's been able to integrate it. I haven't found any tools that actually utilize it. And I don't quite know how to utilize it myself. I still haven't understood what the hell you do with a raw model. Um, and maybe it's just that you can't do anything with a raw model unless you know how to code. But we'll see. Hopefully, I'll be able to dig that far into it as, as we continue forward with the show. But it's just so cool to see these developments. And the fact that the, the training, the, the algorithm, the, the math itself... The, the way to produce the model is open. It's not this closed, secretive thing. And as soon as you have a large model, as soon as you have a significant model that's out in the wild and available in the open source environment, the speed at which we can actually iterate on that and make improvements and do specialized training. It's a really, really great, great quote that just like, it hit me while I was reading it. I was, because I love this. And I think this is so important and uh, is indicative to the concept of learning itself. It says, quote, data quality scales better than data size. I love that. That's so great. And another quote here that I saved says, who would pay for a Google product with usage restrictions if there is a free high quality alternative without them? So going back to the idea of me arguing with chat GPT, chat gpt to give it to give me an answer on basic stuff because it's so worried i might insult someone instead of any real danger like the genuine dangers like we talked about with uh, alex lewin in episode three of ai they're worried god forbid that i ask it a dirty joke or some or ask it to be insulting so i can write an interesting character i just need a, i literally need a thesaurus for just negative sounding words dear god like it's so patronizing. I even I even told it that are you built to be patronizing? It's like I'm so sorry. It's funny that you actually because it's a language model, you genuinely have to argue with it. You actually have to argue with it in language in order to trick it or to get it to do things uh, that it doesn't want to or it's quote unquote not supposed to do. But what's fascinating is that because it is a language model, you literally can. You can you can argue your way to get it to change itself. To get it to change its answers, which is so fascinating. It's absolutely crazy. But going back to kind of the fundamental elements the that are the input to this whole situation in this ecosystem. It says, quote, but holding on to a competitive advantage in technology becomes even harder now that cutting edge research in LLMs is affordable. So it's so important to realize or, or to to register. The, the ability to train these things, the barrier to training these things, is why you could actually build a quote-unquote moat. You could build a competitive advantage around this, which is why it was so concerning to me, this narrative, or this, you could almost call it propaganda, though I doubt it was actually uh, conscious, that these uh, AI are only going to be you're only going to be able to run them with 30,000 GPUs and, and huge, huge models are the best and they're going to dominate everything. It's very much 
the idea that, you know, top-down planning is going to produce the perfect society and uh, monetary manipulation by experts is going to be way better than actual use of, genuine use of money in the society by the actual people who understand what the hell money actually means. And I think it's a fundamental flaw. It is, it is just that same fallacy wrapped up in a different way. It's actually so reassuring to actually see this in practice to see the fact that this might really be the case. But going back to the quote, it says, research institutions all over the world are building on each other's work, exploring the solution space in a breadth-first way that far outstrips our own capacity. We can try to hold tightly to our secrets while outside innovation dilutes their value, or we can try to learn from each other. This again is why I think it's so important that we understand and utilize these tools as much as we can because I think the outcome of this is so so much more positive if we can put this in the hands as to as many pieces put this in the hands of as many people as possible to both utilize to real-time human feedback train their personal AI and to train based on their particular skill set their particular, tasks, their uh, particular speciality in being productive, in the content that they care about, in the styles that they love. Because that is how you get unbridled quality and performance and results from the smallest number of parameters, from the smallest model possible. We need widespread uh, individualized curation of the content that trains these models, which means that the barrier to entry and the understand the barrier to entry for training needs to be as low as possible, and the ability and knowledge to train needs to be as widespread as possible. Now, another another indication of how quickly the landscape changes is I think everybody is so focused on chat GPT right now and everybody's like open AI is crazy. It's it's basically equivalent to AI. Chat GPT is like kind of in the lexicon. You know, when I say chat GPT, I genuinely I almost use it as a replacement for AI. But here's the crazy thing. Remember, does anybody remember how exciting Dolly was when it first came out? And Dolly too? I remember that was the first thing that I was like, oh holy crap, this is fascinating. And then it kind of died down a little bit. But then stable diffusion happened. I hadn't even thought about Dolly in months. It's almost crazy how quickly they were essentially made obsolete or just unimportant in the space. What could have been perceived as a huge competitive advantage and, you know, leaps ahead of everyone else in the space just vanished. Just completely vanished. I couldn't imagine, I can't imagine how little I care about Dolly right now. Because I've been using Stable Diffusion. In fact, I've been, uh, and I'll try to make one for this episode, but I've been um, making custom QR codes with Stable Diffusion on my computer and just kind of experimenting with different things that you can do and the different models. And it's just so cool. Now you have things like Runway ML and Gen 2, their new model, where you can literally create a video, create video from prompt, text to video. I think it's at 15 second sections now. Dude, this stuff is moving so fast. It's crazy. 
It's like one of those things that I, I'm, I'm upset that I can't utilize Falcon right now, or at least I don't have the skills or the knowledge yet to make uh, the best utilization of this new model. But I'm almost just kind of like, eh, I'm going to be busy with something else for like the next six days. And then somebody will have this out. Like this, it just moves that fast. And I find it fascinating that this particular person at Google sees how much, or at least as Llama was the dominant uh, open source language model, uh, how valuable it actually was to Meta because everybody was building on their model, which means that they're working with all of the community who wants to utilize these things and has found some clever way or some clever trick to do um to uh, to train or tweak these models to do something specific that Meta actually gets to use it because it's their model. So it's like everybody doing work for them. So another really clever decision that I uh, think really falls into line with this was when Tesla used their um, open sourced their plug, the the plug for the Tesla to to plug it into like the equivalent of a gas station, you know, plug it into the charger, that they open sourced their plug and their, their station, their units or whatever it was. Because what ended up happening is they had already done all this previous work and they could have tried to close it off. They could have tried to do an Apple and say, this is my proprietary Tesla plug, my lightning plug, and nobody else can use it. But what would they have done? They would have literally slit their own wrists regarding the infrastructure of the of of the economy because the the all of the other electric cars from Ford and Honda and everybody wouldn't have been able to use their plugs which means they would have had to pl used a an alternative uh infrastructure they would have had to set up their own infrastructure I mean, imagine if you went to a gas station and then found out that the nozzle simply didn't fit into your car and you had to go to a different gas station like, how horrible of an experience would that be? And they could have done that to try to gain control over the ecosystem, but instead what they did is they allowed the ecosystem to blossom while benefiting them because they had already done the work of the plug, of the, the charging station, of open source, of doing all of this infrastructure, putting out tons of stations, and then open sourcing it. And now all of these other car companies... What else would they do but use Teslas? And what happens? All of the other car companies build Tesla's infrastructure and network on the road system for them. This is the same thing with open source. And I really hope to see one of these companies just kind of throw their hands up and say, uh, we're just going to pivot to all the open source stuff, especially with things like Falcon dropping and with these things moving along. I think when we see something like that happen, which we will absolutely cover it on this freaking show uh, if it does happen, because that will be a really exciting moment that these trends and this perspective is in fact what is playing out and what will be most meaningful the more time goes on the more powerful this trend and feedback loop will be and i love positive feedback loops you know you know me from bitcoin audible it's the game theory stuff it's the natural incentives incentives are everything and it's just fascinating to see how these will play out in ai and the fact that the end result of this from going from my original thinking that these are going to be trapped in giant gpu server farms and only giant corporations can run them and they'll be stuck into platforms to realizing that it might actually be natural and 
practically inevitable and at least or at least so naturally incentivized that we can push it this way in a really significant manner by actually altering our behavior and utilizing the tools properly that we can actually end up in a world where everyone has their own private AI, their own personally trained AI, and that they are all locally run. The, just the sheer possibility of that is just so fascinating to me. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that read. Um, this, is, this is one of those things that just has me really excited about this space and how to utilize these tools for, for Bitcoin, for, for everybody. To, to just kind of bring freedom, to, to destroy, to, to bring an end to this bullshit economy, to the, the economy of bullshit jobs and just finally, finally destroy the minutia of uh, work. It's just so exciting to me. And uh, so I get really jazzed about it. And, and this was really the piece that finally, when I read this, I was like, this is it. This is it. I'm going... I am fully committed and I am going down this rabbit hole and this is something that the Bitcoin ecos that everybody, that everybody needs to utilize and understand um, because cause I think we'll, we will be the every new person we add to it. It's just like the free market. It's, it's a game of numbers. It's a game of um, more people with skin in the game and more people with direct understanding and the closest relationship to the things that me are meaningful to them feeding back into the ecosystem, into the collective knowledge. And that is what these things are. They're a form of collective knowledge. And so, you know, we need the holistic farmer to train the LLM on how they do their job. We need the, uh, the Bitcoin developer to give an incredibly elegant and specialized model that helps train, uh, helps uh, code for security, for conservatism, for um, robustness. And I think that future is actually possible, and I think we're headed in that direction. So uh, with that, uh, with that, I am going to go uh, uh, get my kid uh, ready for bed. And thank you guys so much for listening. And I will catch you on the next episode of AI Unchained. Don't forget to check out the mini links uh, that I will have about Chris Latner and Mojo and those things in the show notes. And I will try to remember the tools specifically that I mentioned so that you can check them out. And of course, Fold and CoinKite, uh, who have helped let me make content full-time and have been such an amazing part of my Bitcoin life with the products and services that they offer, please check them out. And also go to swanbitcoin.com slash guy if you're buying your Bitcoin or you're getting onboarded. That's my special link and it helps out the show. So thank you guys so much. And I will catch you on the next episode of AI Unchained. <laughs>